Hello and welcome to the MDDDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and I wanted to clarify why we've been gone for the last two weeks. We have been meeting as we normally have. We've had two great lessons and two great nights of meeting together, but we decided that because of the tone and the weight of the, both of those topics, one on actually Christian blogging and then the other on the topic of hell, we figured it best not to actually share the recording of the podcast for both of those weeks. This is not something that we'll typically do, but we just decided that it was best considering these two weeks and the topics therein. We are happy to be back with the last in our series on false doctrines. This is going to be a look by David Flatt at Christ and culture, or as we're calling it, Christ versus culture, because it's true that oftentimes those two things are uh, in opposition to one another. Sometimes the culture, it plays very well into Christianity, and sometimes it doesn't. I think maybe the more uh, confusing or difficult thing is when you can't really tell the difference between the two uh, in the sense that maybe a Christian is completely in line with culture and wants to say that they're a Christian, but in fact, that's not in line with Christ at all. And so uh, it's a great topic. I've actually heard David give this one. So if you're out there listening, I promise it'll be worth your time. It's going to be very excellent. If you haven't visited with us recently, or maybe you've never visited at all, we're here on Monday nights at my house in Germantown. Uh, typically at 7 p.m. tonight, we're, we're together at 6 p.m. because we're having dinner tonight. We do that from time to time. So let's go ahead and get into this topic of Christ versus culture with David Flat. Well, good evening. Um, <clears throat> listen, I appreciate there being so many new faces here. It's always kind of like maybe a little pressure. We have some new people, so hopefully it's good enough. Uh, hopefully you learned something that you, you want to come back. I, I do think there's kind of a, something special going on here on Monday nights. Um, really kind of some neat relationships I think are starting to form and I think we all look forward to <coughs> coming together and uh, all the fun that is but more importantly we want to be a group of people that's in the word and that, that treats the word seriously we treat it authoritatively and so if, if we believe that the Bible is authoritative then we want to learn what it's saying and what it teaches so like Kyle said we're going through a series called false doctrines and we've talked about different things that I think we're all kind of susceptible to it at one level or another, how we can kind of get confused about what's true and what's not. And so this is kind of a weird false doctrine. Our topic tonight is culture, authority, and the people of God. And so you say, well, David, what's the false doctrine there? Really, the false doctrine is not something that's so much taught, but something that's just kind of caught, so to speak, something that's just kind of heard and, and assumed in culture. And it's that whatever is the cultural norm, whatever most people think and believe about a topic is true. Okay, and, and I think um, whether you go to church or you don't go to church or you go to church and you're thinking about not, not going to church or you don't go to church and you're thinking about going to church, kind of wherever you are on that continuum, I think it's true that you, what you believe and how you behave is impacted by the culture that you live in in ways that, that are just far beyond what you would consciously understand. And so you look at what the church is teaching and what um, Christians, people who say they're Christians, believe, and uh, I think it's just obvious that, oh, this person lives in 2017 Western culture. You know, that a, a Christian in 1600 would never believe or think that. And that's not to say that 2017 is all worse than 1600. I think we've improved on some things and some other things we kind of got confused about. So what I want to encourage us tonight is to not make the assumption that because you live in a certain um, cultural milieu, that that's necessarily true. We want to be. We want to think above that and be people who um, 
lean on the Word of God as our authority and then use that to understand and live within culture. Okay? So um, that's what we're talking about tonight, and then um, we'll get to mere Christianity next week. All right, there we go. Okay, so anytime you're going to talk about culture, you think, oh man, some Christians are getting together talking about culture. This is going to be a disaster. Like, how much fun is this going to be? Like, the most unfun thing I've ever heard. Um, and so, what I want to do tonight is kind of take a different approach, right? So, um, I want to focus not on particular hot button issues, but instead, I want to focus on how culture works. That's your blank there. How culture works and how influential it can be, right? So, um, I don't want to spend our time talking about how this cultural issue is good or this one's bad or you know I, I think some of that's helpful um but i don't necessarily want to be a, a critic of culture so to speak tonight as a, as a student of it and to, to think can we understand how culture works and how that imp- impacts our faith i'm gonna give a couple of caveats here just because it's kind of a, a sensitive topic so the first thing i would say is this is a difficult topic so i just kind of ask you guys some that you know, getting to know pretty well, and some, I guess we just, just met you guys, a, you know, a few minutes ago, but just, I would just ask you to be gracious to me. I'm going to do the best I can to talk about kind of some sensitive topics that um, certainly, um, if said too strong one way or the other, could be offensive to, to somebody or not, I don't know, but I'm certainly not trying to do any of that, so just give me the benefit of the doubt. I promise everything I say is coming from a heart that wants to know truth and wants to communicate it in a way that honors Christ. Second thing I would say, just in that same spirit, I may be wrong about some of the things I'm saying. I'm, I'm doing the best to kind of understand um, culture and understand how culture impacts faith and how a Christian ought to try to live in that in that gap, so to speak. Uh, but I'm not teaching this the same way um, that, say, I would teach a lesson if we were teaching on Mark 9. So if, if, I, if I was teaching on Mark 9 tonight, we'd open out the text and I would teach from a much more authoritative posture because I'd be teaching something that, it, that sits above me, that's authoritative. A lot of what I'm doing tonight is trying to be a good Christian um, guy that is trying to be wise in how I look at culture and communicate that. So some of this, by necessity, is just kind of my opinion on what I think is true, uh, but I'm trying to be honest in how I talk about it. And then finally, I just want to lead with love. So everything I say is because I love you guys, even the people we just met, and and I love the church. I want to see the church be vibrant and effective and lead both people within the church and outside our walls to live a life that's true, good, and beautiful, right? We don't want to um, call people to a, a boring, you know, judgmental, no fun existence. I think that the calling to Christ is something worth coming to, and so I want to help us be able to kind of understand how all that fits together. I don't know if what's going on here. Okay. Okay, so I think this is one of the most important quotes um, for understanding culture that maybe has ever been said. So you guys probably all know the story. So Martin Luther King is a great civil rights leader um, from Montgomery, Alabama. And so he starts this great movement in African-American Baptist churches in the South and really takes the region and then the country and in, in some ways the world by storm. Um, but along his journey, he gets arrested in Birmingham. So he, goes, he gets arrested, thrown in jail in Birmingham, and writes this letter that probably most of you read in like your high school English class or uh, maybe in uh, your college literature class, but a letter, to, letter from a Birmingham jail, this famous letter. And the situation he's responding to is he's living in a culture where the dominant feeling, kind of the, the air that everyone's breathing, has some sin in it. 
right? The culture contains this kind of ugly sin of racism. And the problem within churches, instead of responding to that racism with a biblical pattern of something more true and more beautiful, the idea that all humans, regardless of their skin color, are created in the image of God and have intrinsic worth, infinite worth in and of themselves, instead of responding with truth to that sin, I think there's you know some kind of increasing passivity in the churches uh, in the region at that time. And maybe even worse than that, there's kind of just some acceptance of the culture as it is, right? So there's just this temptation just to kind of, well, I'm breathing in this kind of what everyone believes, and so I'll just kind of reflect it because that's the easiest thing to do. It's hard to be different. So he writes this paragraph, which I think is really pointed. He says, There was a time when the church was very powerful, in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. But the judgment of God is upon the church today as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. So I think he is literally exactly right in, in his analysis of what was going on in 1960s Southern culture, even within the churches, is the church was acting not as a thermostat trying to influence society for something better, but as a thermometer was just saying, hey, it's 72 degrees outside the church. We're going to make it 72 degrees inside the church, right? And so there's no, no change, no adjustment to culture. So I, th- I think this phrase is especially poignant. Not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. So that's what the church used to be. Is my battery going dead or... Okay, so the first blank here is a thermometer measures the temperature that surrounds it. So I think his uh, his metaphor is <coughs> is apt. This idea that um, you know if it's like I said, if it's seventy degrees outside, if it's eighty five degrees outside, a thermometer is going to read eighty five. It's not changing anything. The next blank, a thermostat changes and determines the temperature surrounding it. So when it's hot outside or it's cold outside, Kyle and Ann are going to set their thermostat to make it feel better inside, to improve things. And so in King's analogy, that's what we want to be in our culture, right? We don't just want to reflect the good and bad around us. We want to be more discerning than that and also more effective than that. We want to take what's going on around us and improve it. Right, so it, culture ought to be more good, more true, more beautiful among the church and among the Christians than just what's going on around us. So, so what? Um, okay, one more thing. So we have to make the choice as individuals, families, institutions. That's that blank, and within the church as to whether we are going to be thermometers that simply reflect the surrounding temperature of culture or if we're going to be thermostats who seek to change culture in a gospel-centered and biblical direction. So just the three blanks there. The first institution, I think part of the Christian calling 
in a, a secular, maybe even post-Christian culture, if you want to call it that, in 2017 America. We need to be intentional about forming institutions that are going to create you know, beautiful, better cultures. So if you think about um, nonprofits, you think about schools, you think about universities, you think about the church itself. We want to be active and not just being a critic of the culture, um, but we want to be somebody that cultivates a more beautiful, a better way to live. The second blank, the church, I think any institution or thoughts about institutions, begins and ends with the church. That, that's God's plan to save the world, right? It's, it's through the church. So we want to be committed to that. And the third blank is gospel-centered, right? So we want to be not just uh, going through the routine of church attendance and telling Bible stories and kind of just doing it because we've always done it. We want to be people with the message that matters. And so that's why you know, we started the whole Bible study. We did five weeks on what is the gospel because uh, I, I do think it matters what it is we're teaching. We want to be teaching something that, that's, that's better. Okay, so let's do some basic definitions, I think, that can kind of help us if we're going to try to um, maybe take this in a, in a deeper direction. The first thing is So culture is the behaviors, beliefs, values, and symbols that a group of people accept generally without thinking about them and that are passed along by communication and imitation from one generation to the next, right? There are literally 10,000 things that you think or believe based on the culture that you live in, right? And sometimes based on no evidence at all, it just happens to be that that's where you were. So a good example that's given sometimes this phenomenon, if you were a 9th century Italian citizen, you probably would have believed that the earth is flat, right? You happen to be a millennial American living in a you know, scientific age, so you believe that the world is round, right? And so it happens to be a true belief, right? And there's, there's, there's evidence for that. But the point is that a lot of things you believe, both scientifically or just culturally or even morally, come not from... Uh, research or analytical approach, but that's just kind of the air you breathe. So if we live in like post-enlightenment Western culture, right? So we believe a lot of things about science and about truth and about morality, um, not because necessarily we've thought through them or because we've thought about well, how does a biblical worldview apply to this thought. It's because um, that's the culture we live in. So it's not all bad. In fact, culture can be very effective and healthy. If you're in an organization that has a healthy culture, say like Alabama's football team like that's gonna be really healthy right like everybody on team is like working hard if you don't work hard like you're gonna like you're gonna stand out you're gonna want to quit if you're like a lazy person if you're lazy you would like fit in really well with Tennessee's team right like <laughs> like we're you know the whole the whole deal is lazy if you were actually like performing at a high level it kind of be kind of awkward for you so you might want to like tone it down They're like don't run quite so fast you know we're kind of slower is what fits in here uh, so culture is powerful, right, in, in some ways that we don't even understand or appreciate. Okay, what is authority? Authority is the power to influence or command thought, opinion, or behavior, right? So you think about authority figures, you know, we're, I guess, uh, Kyle and I were talking, I think we're like, you know, the oldest millennials that there are, it's like us. So most people say like it starts in like 1984, goes to like 2002, so we're like, about like we're almost you maybe you know you're in right well they've released an article saying i'm an exennial actually and i think <laughs> i share more characteristics with that uh but it's okay with that kind of word. yeah i'd like yeah. to read that yeah <coughs> isn't that interesting 
Yeah, my point is we're kind of skeptical of authority, maybe rightly so, right? There's, there's some authority that needs to be questioned, and we need to think through who it is that we're trusting with influence. Um, but just to, I think that's helpful to understand what authority is. It's people who can influence or direct us on what we should think, what we should believe, and how we should behave, right? So the difference in culture and authority is culture is kind of the unspoken, kind of what we breathe, and so that causes us to believe and behave in a certain way. Authority is the figure that's going to dictate culture. So who determines the culture of our home? Well, Lauren and I do, right? We have a certain expectations for our children, what time, what time we go to bed, how we eat dinner. Like there's some things that, that need to happen to create the culture in our home, and those are going to be dictated by, based on our authority, but who's the ultimate authority of our home? Well, I hope when it's healthy and running right, the ultimate authority is God, right? So we want to lead our home. I want to lead my wife. We want to lead our children together in a way that honors God because He's the ultimate authority on our best days. You know, that's not, not always true, but that's what we're shooting for, right? That's what we're, what we're trying to be. And so that's how authority works. So then the, the third thing is how to culture and authority interact. So we unconsciously grant authority in determining what we believe about morality, religion, behavior, family, money, politics, success, marriage, parenthood, and meaning to the temperature of the culture that surrounds us. This is not a, hey, look, you're doing this wrong thing. You should do it the way I'm doing. This is like, if you're a person, you're going to live in a culture and if you live in a culture, that culture is necessarily going to have some authority about how you think about things. And again, that's not all bad, right? There are some norms in Western society that are important, right, that we need to protect. There's things about, um, you know, how we behave, how we, how we treat each other, uh, what kind of dress is appropriate, how... Um, you know, relationships between men and women should exist. I mean, there's there's some important social norms and culture that are that are good. So this phenomenon is not all bad. I just want us to understand what it is, so that we can try to live into it in a healthy way as Christians. So uh, one of my very favorite, maybe my favorite author right now. Um, I don't know. I've got a got a few on like my top five list, but a guy that I just think is, man, this guy really gets it. Is a <clears throat> preacher named Timothy Keller. And uh, this quote, I think, is really insightful. So uh, maybe just listen, listen to this quote and see if, if it rings true to you. Virtually all, all the objections you might have to things that the Bible teaches are based on high faith in your culture and superiority of your culture. Timothy Keller. So here's, here's an example um, I've used before, and I've talked about this quote. One of my really good friends... A faithful Muslim. He's from from Egypt. We uh, study together. Have a you know good professional uh, relationship. We work together. <clears throat> One of the things that he um, talks about that really bothers him about uh, my faith and the way that I view God and view the world is this idea that God would just grant um, in, would just grant so freely forgiveness to so many people who've done so many evil things, right? So this idea that, that you could murder somebody or that you could uh, be involved in a, abusing a child is a, a one that he always brings up. And that God would just kind of say, you know, for, forgive that and, and still love you anyways. That's totally offensive to him. Well, what, you know, my, my suspicion is, maybe I'm wrong, but very few of us in this room have been led to doubt or questioning God because it appears to us that he's too forgiving, 
are too loving, right? That I mean, I even see some like kind of smirks or smiles on them, like, and you're like, of course that's never occurred to me. Well, why is that? Why does my buddy find such offense at the, you know, gracious, extravagant love and forgiveness of God? And probably you find some offense at the justice and judgment of God. Why is that? Well, the reason is because you were raised in a Western culture in, you know, the last 20, 25 years, right? My buddy was raised in a, you know, patriarchal, um, more judging traditional culture in the third world or in the developing world, right? So his objections to the Bible are based not specifically on um, reading the text in the abstract. His objections are based on the cultural norms that he's granted authority to, and your objections are based on the cultural norms that you've granted authority to. Things like grace and forgiveness and love, tolerance, really high values in, in Western thought. Um, you know, he, he would have different values that he placed it at different levels. Again, I, I'm not coming down too hard on what's right or wrong. I just want us to kind of understand that, man, cult, the culture that you live in and the authority you grant to the surrounding culture has huge impacts on what it is that you believe. Okay, so that leads us to what I want to kind of briefly go through. So this is really going to be um, too fast. You can go on a couple of slides. This is really going to be too fast to be appropriate, right? So we're going to try to do like a semester uh, college semester in the next 15 minutes, right? But I want to do a summary of the history of American culture. So talk about what is culture? We talked about authority. So how, as um, our country has progressed, how have Americans thought about culture and authority? Okay. And so I've divided up into four sections, and of course, the uh, paintbrush I'm painting with here is way too big to really be. Um, as insightful or detailed as this topic really deserves, right? So I'm going to try to tell the history of American culture and like the Civil War is not even up there, right? So uh, I mean, it's just huge, broad strokes here. But I, th I think appropriate. I think I've dealt with it um, in a way that's fair and honest and can, can make our point. So I'm going to say that there's been of American cultural thought. The first is what we'll call the Protestant consensus. This is from the 1770s to 1950. So I'm going to argue that most of um, cultural thought in America has been kind of dominated by one particular way of viewing the world, and that that began to change in the 50s, really dramatically in the 60s. So we'll call this the sexual revolution, the 1960s to 1980. Then we had a period of competing visions for about 30 years, had really some dramatic cultural wars from 1980 to 2010. And then I'm going to argue that the cultural wars are over, and that we knew we have a new uh, kind of dominant vision, which I'll call elite secular rule, and we'll talk about why I think that and, and what that means. <clears throat> okay, so Protestant consensus, 1770s to 1750. So the Protestant consensus, from the pre-colonial era to the late 1950s, the dominant and elite perspective was that of mainline—that's your blank there—Protestantism. Okay, so mainline Protestantism is going to include denominations from these strains of Christianity. The American Baptist, the Disciples of Christ, the Episcopalians, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, Presbyterian Church USA, the Reformed Church in America, the United Churches of Christ, and the United Methodist Church. There are probably a few others, but that's, that's kind of basically what we mean when a uh, church demographer says um, mainline Protestant. They're including those denominations. And of course, these denominations have branched off from other denominations and um, other denominations have branched off from them. It's like the, the PCUSA 
um, the PCA branched off from the Presbyterian Church in America, which I think some of you guys may either have been a part of in the past or are now. So um, it's kind of interesting church history wrapped up in there. But just for our purposes, those are the denominations we meet. Uh, the Institute for Religion in America notes that in 1965, so still kind of right at the beginning of the sexual revolution, 50% of Americans were members of one of these denominations. And that's like, that's a huge number. Like half the country went to one of these churches. Here's, what's, here's something even more impressive. Two-thirds of American presidents, almost every president, almost every president, basically depending on what you do with Lincoln, every president and Jefferson. Lincoln and Jefferson are kind of like, not, it's kind of hard to put them in a box. But other than those two guys, all our presidents for the first 150 years were a member of one of these mainline Protestant denominations. So what's the point there? The point is, this, this way of thinking was really powerful in our country's history dominated our cultural thought till about 1950. Uh, maybe some things to put up here, like the Episcopalians have re- definitely been pulling their weight, right? we got a lot of Episcopalian presidents. Um, you know, you got Presbyterians there, Baptist, Methodist. I think the two Quakers is interesting. That. Yeah. Um, James A. Garfield here. I've, um, the tradition that I come out of the same one that Kyle comes out of, the Church of Christ. So there are some Church of Christ people that say that Garfield was a Church of Christ because he was president before the split with the Disciples of Christ, but it's kind of not what we're talking about <laughs> today. Um, then, of course, Lincoln and Jefferson are kind of in a, a box by themselves there. Um, yeah, they shot him, right? They shot Lincoln? Garfield. Oh. Church Christ. Sorry. Yeah, so uh, that's what <laughs> Yeah. So, um, um, yeah. So that's that's where our presidents have been. Sorry. Ooh, come back. Yeah. Okay. Um, Jay Gresham mentioned wrote this book, Christianity and Liberalism, in 1923. It's a really important book in kind of American cultural thought. Uh, the point I want to make here is though that since since the turn of the 20th century, about the time that Manchin wrote this book. Mainline Protestantism has been confronted with a staggering theological and numerical decline. So, of course, you can kind of see my biases there. I'm calling this not just a numerical decline, which you can kind of show with numbers, <coughs> but I'm going to call it a theological decline. I think that the theology in a lot of these churches has really weakened, and it's led uh, to some really negative things in terms of cultural impact, more, more importantly, gospel impact. So, in Christianity and Liberalism, J. Gresham Manchin in 1923 explores the key differences between, now it's not political liberals, but theological liberals, we can maybe talk about what that means uh, later, but theological liberals and biblically faithful Christians over the doctrine of God, man, scripture, salvation, Christ, and the church, and calls the church to proclaim the biblical gospel in all its purity. So really theological liberalism is an idea um, that diminishes the authority of the Bible and wants to reread the Bible in light of the culture that it exists in, right? So what does the resurrection mean? Well, the um, classical authoritative biblical view of the resurrection would be that Jesus Christ literally conquered sin and death in the resurrection, physically rose from the grave in a resurrected body um, as the firstborn of all new creation, right? And it has deep kind of meaning and theological uh, thoughts behind that. A um, theological liberal would say <clears throat> Jesus rising from the dead means that um, Jesus uh, symbolically overcame the struggles in his life, and we can also rise as we overcome the things and challenges in our lives. Right, so you can kind of reinterpret things in a way 
often to make them less miraculous, certainly to make them more applicable and comfortable in your cultural context. Okay, so let's start to look at kind of some of the thoughts in mainline churches. 93% of clergy members, 83% of, wor- of worshipers from growing churches in America agreed with the statement, quote, Jesus rose from the dead with a real flesh and blood body, leaving behind an empty tomb. This is compared with 67% of worshipers and 56% of clergy members from declining churches. Okay, so churches that are growing, everyone going to the churches that is growing believes in the resurrection. Almost all the people preaching at the churches believe in the resurrection. Churches that are declining, um, only 67% of the worshipers believe in the resurrection. Only about half of the preachers believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead in some of these declining churches. So you think, why are these churches declining? Well, there's no reason to get up on Sunday morning to go and talk about something that's not true, that doesn't have any impact on eternity, right? So whether or not the resurrection is true or not, we're going to talk about um, about a month, why I think historically we should believe that it's true. But you can certainly understand if you don't believe that it's true, this Bible study is a waste of time, right? Like you should go, you should have watched Monday Night Football tonight, if, like if all this is not true. So if we're going to try to build a church movement around theological liberalism that wants to reinterpret the meaning of the gospel in ways um, that makes it abstract and less real, that's not going to be a growing movement. And so to the shock of no one, here's what's happened um, to mainline Protestantism in the past 50 years, or um, even less than that, past 30 years. So if you look over on the left, this graph starts in 1972. If you track it back, this trend probably started in the 50s. The top solid line is the people who would affiliate themselves as mainline Protestants. So people who would say, yes, I belong to one of those denominations. The graph on the bottom is people who actually attend church services. <coughs> So, um, I'm not a statistician, right, but I did did take biostats in undergrad, and that looks like a negative trend line, right? So, if you're like gonna, if you're gonna interpret the rise over the run, like the R value on this trend is is negative, right? So, we went from, you know, high on the left side of the graph, low on the bottom side of the graph. This is going in a a bad direction. And the reason, of course, is there's no gospel left to preach, right? There's no gospel left to preach. In, uh, in some of these churches. So here's what Ed Stetzler said, who's a um, church demographer. He says, if the data continues along the same pattern, mainline Protestants have an expiration date when both trend lines cross zero in 2039. If the trend lines continue, they have 23 Easter's left. So I don't actually think that's going to happen, right? I think they'll make some adjustments. These denominations that have been in place for you know centuries but the point is if, if things keep going the way they're going like that's the trend line in mainline liberal Christianity that tries to reinterpret some of these core basic doctrines they are losing members and so you know again I think I would take issue um, go back a couple slides no up one yeah so um, I would take issue with their theological liberalism, right? I, I'm, I'm much more on the conservative end theologically. But that's not even my point. My point is that someone that's influencing and affecting culture, your trend lines don't look like this if you have cultural impact, right? And so these churches, you can imagine the cultural impact they had in 1940 versus in 2017 is much, much less. So in this vacuum where you have mainline Protestantism abandoning the gospel, losing cultural influence, what happened? 
Well, what happened was the sexual revolution and the most dramatic cultural change in American history. The sexual revolution. This is a social movement that challenged traditional codes of behavior related to sexuality and interpersonal relationship throughout the Western world from the 1960s to the 1980s. Sexual liberation included increased acceptance of sex outside of traditional heterosexual monogamous relationships, primarily marriage, the normalization of contraception, public nudity, pornography, premarital sex, homosexuality, and alternative forms of sexuality, and the legalization of abortion all followed. So a lot of those topics that became more popular um, certainly existed in much greater um, percentage-wise during and after the sexual revolution than before. A lot of those deserve a whole Monday night on their own, right? So I'm not, I'm not here to argue for or against the particulars of every one of those things that's listed there. I think there's some, some good, healthy conversations that could be had. The point is that that list of things was not happening at near the same degree in 1940 as it was in 1970. A dramatic cultural shift happened, and it happened because the um, cultural authority that mainline Protestantism used to have, it no longer had. So the sexual revolution, um, this is, you ought to read the article in Wikipedia about the sexual revolution. It's actually, it's actually really good. Um, but they argue that five things happened in the sexual revolution. The first is that it separated pregnancy from monogamy. Okay, So it's not culturally acceptable for um, a pregnancy to occur without being married, or at least monogamous. Before the sexual revolution. It's much more acceptable today. Second, it separated child rearing from marriage, right? So it, normal, it was the norm and the standard to raise children within a monogamous marriage with a, a, a mother and a father. Before the sexual revolution, things changed after. Third, it removed sexual behavior from the realm of the sacred, right? So the way that sex was viewed in the 1940s and 50s was very different. You think about... Um, one of the things that Laura and I like to do, we watch kind of like old TV shows because we're kind of old souls or whatever. <laughs> so one of the shows we really like is I Love Lucy, right? It's like hilarious. Uh, but Ricky and Lucy, they sleep in different beds, like on the TV show. You now why, like that's just so goofy. Why do they do that? I'm, actually, I think that's ridiculous, right? I don't, I don't think that's healthy. Like I would not argue that we like return to this like kind of pretend asexual culture where we like no one, I think like you weren't allowed to say the word pregnant on TV for like a, a period of time. So I'm, that's certainly not my argument. My argument is just to understand how dramatically things changed, right? So we went from um, not that long ago, a husband and wife slept in separate single beds in the same bedroom to, I mean, obviously things are very different. If we turn on the television right now, you know, the sitcoms are, are, dim are <coughs> presenting sex in a much different way. Uh, okay, also the sexual revolution minimized distinctions between men and women from um, how men and women dressed to what men and women did to um, sexual behavior. Just anything that was kind of a normative distinction between men and women, uh, those were broken down. Again, not all for bad. There's some distinctions and things about women's empowerment I think that are really healthy. Like we got several women in the room that are like in med school or nurses or PAs. I mean, that's great. You know, that's, that's something that ought to be celebrated. I'm just uh, pointing out that it happened. This is something that happened in the sexual revolution is those, di those distinctions uh, diminished. And then five, we overturned the traditional families and normative standard. So what I mean by normative is this was ex the traditional family, you know, one dad, one mom, children, white picket fence, two-story house, you know, 
that was seen as like normal, the normative standard, what ought to be aspired to before the sexual revolution, during and after, you know, not, not so much. That's not the standard um, that, that everyone in our culture is, is trying to achieve for a variety of different reasons. Okay, so that was the sexual revolution. Let's talk briefly about the last two, uh, the competing vision. So, like any revolution, there's always a counter-revolution. So we, this is the uh, 500th year, 500th anniversary of the Reformation is this year in 2017. 500 years ago, Martin Luther uh, you know, nailed his theses to the door. Um, I guess the, the actual date was October 31st. We should have said something about it. I guess we didn't meet that night. Went trick or treating yep. <coughs> I knocked on some doors. Yeah, there you go. He knocked on some doors. <laughs> Um, but the point is, even with the Reformation, there was a counter-Reformation within the Catholic Church. Any revolution is going to have a counter-revolution. That's what happened in American society. So you have what's called the Fourth Great Awakening in the 70s. You have this like Jesus movement. Actually, Christianity grows. All these new churches are planted. The megachurch movement rises. Um, then you have the Civil Rights Movement, which I would argue was a part of the increased uh, social and spiritual awareness of Americans during the sexual revolution. A lot more can be said about that. I think all I would want to point out is that the Civil Rights Movement was a theological movement, right? So Martin Luther King was arguing that all people were created in the image of God, and so all people should be treated uh, equally. Of course, there were people within the Christian movement, within, there were people who claimed to be Christians who opposed the Civil Rights Movement in really disgusting ways, so we ought to be honest about it. But if Christianity wasn't a dominant part of American culture, the Civil Rights Movement wouldn't have happened. Third is the moral majority. So you have this new political movement rising up to counter the sexual revolution, just furious that how the culture is changing, um, want, wants to get politically active. So people who didn't used to vote or run for office began to do so. Then you've got presidential politics that just goes like, I mean, out of control. And I mean, we're still like in the middle of <clears throat> craziness, out of control. I would, I would argue that every presidential election until this past one, in 2016, pitted a sexual revolutionary, a disciple of the sexual revolution, versus um, someone who would adhere to the mainline Protestant consensus. So if you look at the, all the elections from like 1960 onward, you know, JFK and Nixon, you've got Carter versus Reagan, you've got um, Bush versus Dukakis, you've got, um, you've got Clinton versus Bush, then you've got you know, Kerry versus Bush, we list them on. But I would argue that in each of those instances, if you kind of look at the issues, look at what, look at how the participants live their lives, look at the things they were saying, you've got someone that would adhere to the changing moral values of the sexual revolution versus someone that was arguing that the sexual revolution was a mistake, right? And so that was kind of how presidential politics played out. Until, of course, this year we had two disciples of the sexual revolution, <laughs> right? So we, had, we had two candidates kind of arguing for the, the moral norms that came out of the sexual revolution. And then finally the culture war. So you got books written, to, uh, you know, YouTube comes out, so then somebody makes God tube, and so I like, got all these like goofy cultural wars. <laughs> Christians are doing things like just one step late, one step not as good, you know. But anyways, we're trying to compete with a broader culture in ways that are sometimes healthy. I think we ought to be trying to make, um, you know, beautiful Christian culture. Sometimes I think maybe not as effective as it could be. So that's the competing visions. I would argue that that happened till 2010 ish you know maybe, is it 2007 is it 2011 i'm not exactly sure but at some point i think we can say in america we had a sexual revolution we had a war we had a culture war and the sexual revolutionaries won right um i think that <clears throat> we had a, a a battle about what culture was going to accept on all questions uh, especially about 
sexuality and the sexual revolutionaries won the culture war and now the authoritative position in our culture is held by the sexual revolutionaries right and so the the traditional view of uh, right and wrong especially as it pertains to moral behavior the people that stand in authority on those questions hold a view uh, of, of sexu of secularism and uh, would would be part of the, the uh, sexual revolution so uh, you say man Dave that seems kind of like seems kind of negative can you show me that's true well so Barnett did the survey in basically just asking kind of routine questions about morality to people, both uh, U.S. adults and to practicing Christians. Um, we don't have time to kind of go in detail, but just think about how you would answer these questions. I just want to look at some of these numbers. The best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself, right? 91% of adults would say yes. 76% of practicing Christians would say yes. People should not criticize someone else's life choices. 89% of adults say yes. 76% of Christians say yes. To be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most. 86% 86, 86 of adults, 72% of Christians. The highest goal of life is to enjoy it as much as possible. That's an anathema to the gospel. That's like the opposite <laughs> of like what the gospel would say the point of life is. But 84% of Americans and 67% of people we go to church with think the goal of life is to enjoy it. <clears throat> people can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. 79% of Americans, 61% of Christians. Any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. 69% of adults, 40% of Christians. Right. So, again, I'm, I'm going to kind of make my theological point in a second but I, I just want the point from this slide is those numbers in 1950 would have been very different right both for US adults and for practicing Christians right those questions for better or for worse would have been answered very different and so why are they answered this way in 2015 well it's because we live in a elite secular culture right in the air that is breathed both outside the church certainly outside the church but even inside the church is no longer dominated by this kind of uh, soft pseudo unoffensive Christianity like it had been for most of American history but is dominated by a kind of soft whatever you want moral relativism <clears throat> and so here's this is really interesting and I um I guess I'll make the point here. I think it's a kind of pointed point, but it's really against myself in some sense, so I'll make it. These are questions about secularism. So how can you, how can you show that you have a secular culture? Well, look at these three questions. Question on the far left. A belief has to be proven by science to know it's true. A belief has to be proven by science to know it's true. That's a ridiculous standard. No philosopher would ever contend that nothing can be true unless you can, like, Put it in a lab. If that's true, then we don't know anything about anything. Nothing about relationships or ideas or love. I mean, nothing exists. But we have four, we have um, a growing number of Americans who believe this. Ten percent overall. Ten percent of Americans think that nothing's true unless you can prove it in a lab. Here's what I want to point out, though. On all these issues, if you're male, if you live in a city, or if you're white, you're more likely to have a more secular view on all these questions. Right? So if you live in a city, you're much more likely to have a secular view. Right? If you're male, you're more likely to have a more secular view. If you're white, you're more likely to have a secular view. Why is that? Well, I would say <clears throat> mostly 
for a negative part, but our culture is for the most part dominated by people who live in the city, by people who are white, and in a lot of ways by men, right? And so the more connected you are to elite control of a culture, the more um, influence you are by culture. That's why you have 22% of people who live in the city and 3% of the people who live in a rural area believe that only things that can, only things that can be proven scientifically are true. It's why over here on the far right, 31% of people who live in the city believe that meaning and purpose come from working hard to earn as much as possible so you can make the most of your life. 31% of people who live in cities think that. Only 14% of the people that live in rural areas think that. Why is that? It's because the people in the cities are more surrounded by the elite secular culture. I think this is an interesting graph that really shows how powerful a culture is in terms of creating authority that determines what you believe and how you behave. Okay, so... Oh man, are there blanks? I'm sorry, I got rolling there. Um, yeah, so com competing <laughs> visions. The full embrace of revolutionary secular, sexual secular culture was not without significant cultural challenge. Elite secular rule. The current era of American culture thought is dominated by a secular consensus from our elites that trickles down into common culture. Right, so we looked at people who are closer to center power in our culture have adopted and accepted a secular view, adopted the view of the sexual revolutionaries, and that trickles down even into our churches, right? So we got numbers that show like, man, people even believe this stuff in the churches. Okay, so all of that uh, kind of discussion and just information or whatever what you have you background to make uh, make a larger point. And here's a theological point. <clears throat> it is that the sexual revolution has not been without um, has not the sexual revolution has existed in a in occurred in a way of deep physical and spiritual harm to millions. The sexual revolution has caused harm spiritually and physically millions of people. So let's talk about uh, the physical harm first. And again, um, kind of a numbers guy, so I want to look at a couple of numbers. So the sexual revolution, we said these five things happen, okay? See, and we kind of said them without judgment. We just said this is what happened, not right or wrong. So here's been the consequences. So we know one of the strongest things that sociologists know about childhood and children is that children who are raised by single-parent, female-headed families, a lot of times um, with deep dignity and power and bravery by the single mother to endure um, having a lazy uh, boy who thinks he's a man brings a child into the world and then leaves the mother to fend for herself. And that's it's a tragedy. And I think with the church, more to protect and provide and lift up uh, those women. But and the reason we need to do more is because the data is pretty clear. Children and, and women in that situation do really poorly. So 37% of children born to single-parent female-headed families live in poverty. So the, the best predictor of childhood poverty in America is being in a single-parent female-headed family. I wish that wasn't true, but it, it just it is what the data says. Then the contrast that if you're from a married two-parent family, 6.8% poverty. So 82% reduction in poverty if you just have a mom and a dad okay, that you're living with. 
So, why, David, why do you point that out? It's kind of like a judgmental statistic. Well, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm certainly not trying to be judgmental. I'm just trying to make a broader point, and that is that the effects and the cultural norms that changed in the sexual revolution did not happen in isolation, and they weren't just innocent events, and they didn't change, it didn't change our culture in ways that didn't just impact people innocently. There were real consequences to this. So we know that 82% of the children... I'm sorry, 36%. We know that 36% of children from single-parent, single-mother households will live in poverty. This is the percentage of children born to unwed mothers in America. <clears throat> so again, you know, I'm a, a physician, not a statistician, uh, but, but maybe Engineer Electoral over there can help us out. I think this is going to be a positive trend line, right? So rise over run here is positive. Is yeah. that right? So this, this is a trend that's going up. And so the point is, I mean, look at the inflection point. It's almost like the inflection point on the graph almost fits with the cultural things we're talking about, like, right? It's like, it's almost 1960, like the start of the sexual revolution when all this changes. So we had changes in family structure that created childhood poverty that flowed out of our changing culture. So as we abandon um, biblical standards for for family and society and sexuality, it created physical suffering in the world. So why is that? Well, I'm not saying, um, like, like I pointed out before, I think kind of the fear of sex and the idea that you know, never talk about sex and can do sex in all its forms uh, before the sexual revolution was not healthy. That's not a good biblical view that celebrates uh, the beauty of sex and all that it is. <clears throat> but at least if you have standards of sexuality, it does protect you from the consequences of sexual immorality, which we're not trying to defend anymore. So that would be what I would say is the physical, um, the physical problems with the way that our culture has changed and the way that has changed our thinking. And as our thinking as a culture has changed, our behavior has changed. So that's been physical problems created poverty. So that's interesting. I think um, you know, as a doctor, who you know, as a resident and a fellow, I spend all my time. Downtown, taking care of populations who are affected by um, the ways that our culture thinks about things differently now, and so it's good. We should work to change that, but it's real. That's really not the main problem. So the main problem is what's happened spiritually. As we as we've abandoned God's truth in our culture, as we've as we have um, substituted His authority for the authority of culture on important kind of heated questions, we haven't just created. Um, Children without fathers and physical orphans. We've created spiritual orphans. So as we've been cut, as we've been cut off from the truth about what it means to be a man, about what it means to be a woman, and how we exist in complementary relationships in beautiful ways. As we've lost that, we've lost something. It's been um, a spiritual disaster. I'm going to read an article here, written by Russell Moore, somebody I really respect, and I think uh, I think this is really pointed. <coughs> This past week, I met a couple who were married on the 4th of July and baptized on the 5th. They had been cohabitating for many years. They had several children together. They had never known anyone who was part of a church. But when their lives didn't turn out the way that they hoped, they were willing to try anything, including a local church. There, they ran into an old gospel and new life. As I watched them plunged into the waters of baptism, and as I heard their three-year-old son yell from his pew, Wow! I thought about what their story may well be. The story I thought about how their story may be the story of the coming generations. The sexual revolution certainly seems triumphant. 
After a generation of no-fault divorce, cohabitation, ubiquitous pornography, and the culture unhinging of sex from marriage and marriage from childbearing, we now see the courts and the culture decoupling marriage from even its most basic reality, gender. And there are hints on the horizon that the next step, that the next step is to culturally and perhaps legally decouple marriage from, well, couples. If sexuality is about personal expression and individual autonomy, after all, then why, by right, can society deem that, sexu that sexuality should be limited by such an arbitrary number as two? The danger for Christians is that we is that we buy. I'm sorry. The danger for Christians is that we buy into the sexual revolution's narrative. I don't mean that we accommodate ourselves to the sins and heresy of the movement, although that that's always a danger too. I mean the danger is that we assume that the sexual revolution will always be triumphant, progressing upward and onward. To assume such is to assume that the sexual revolution will be able to keep its promises. It can't. <clears throat> we live, after all, in a cosmos ordered around the logos of God, a logos we have come to know personally as Jesus of Nazareth. Part of the wisdom of the universe is the resilience of the marital one-flesh union, Marriage and the limits of sexuality not only pictures the gospel, it is also the way that human beings thrive and flourish. We think we want autonomy and novelty and transgression. What, what really satisfies, though, is fidelity and complementarity and incarnational love. That's why I say the church should prepare for the sexual revolution's refugees. We should understand why the culture around us is exuberant. They believe this will make them happy that their alienation has been a result of cultural marginalization or Puritan repression. But the primary goal we all have is internal. There's a conscience that speaks to us of a word we want to hide from. Where are you and where are you going? There are two sorts of churches that won't be able to reach the refugees of the future. The first is the church that is so scared of people that we scream at them in anger and condemnation if we, are, if we see ourselves as people who are losing a culture rather than people who have been sent on a mission to a culture, this is what we'll do. That will be exaggerated if we take our cues from those who play outraged Christian caricatures for a living rather than those who come to seek and to save that which is lost. If we do not love our mission field, we will have nothing to say to it. The second sort of church that will fail these refugees is the church that gives up or silences its convictions because they're not popular. This too is fear. We assume that we can reach people if we dance around the sexual questions, thinking that we can get to the part, that part of discipleship after they're part of the family. That's just not the way Jesus does it. Jesus gets right at the point of guilt, the part the person is protecting, and calls that person not only to repentance, but also to forgiveness and freedom. If we're silent about the gospel, if we're silent about what the gospel says about sexual immorality, we will not only lose our mission, but we will also lose the respect of those we are seeking to reach. They can read text. All the gymnastics of the revisionist does nothing to silence what honest people read in our scriptures. When they hear us clearing our throats in embarrassment or explaining away things unfashionable for the moment, they hear from us that we are more afraid of them than we are confident in our gospel. How then? Can they trust us with words of life that can overpower the grave when they see that we're not even willing to go against the spirit of the age? The sexual revolution cannot keep its promises. Many people are going to be disappointed. 
And even before they can admit it to the others or to themselves, they're going to ask, is this all there is? We need churches that can keep light lit to the old paths. They can keep the waters of baptism ready. We need to be people who can remind a wounded world of what we've come to hear and believe. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's good news for refugees like us. So I want to thank David for doing an excellent job. What a, a big topic. And to summarize that into uh, about 55 minutes is, is really awesome. So hopefully that gives you a lot of perspective on kind of where we are and why we're here sort of as a, as a church and as, as a culture. And as I was saying, you know, in our, in our discussion that followed, the reason that we study this is, is sort of like, you know, with medicine or with dentistry, you sort of sometimes study... Um, you both study what's normal and also what's abnormal so that you better understand uh, each other. And so I think to sort of understand why our church is abnormal, it's important to study this. And then the hope is, is that we, in response to that, we try and make the church what God wanted it to be um, and what He teaches us in the Scriptures. So this has been a great series. This has been our False Doctrines series. And then next week we will be back with a new series, and this will be on C.S. Lewis's masterpiece, A Mere Christianity. So if you're in the area, we're in Germantown. We will be here Monday nights, 7 p.m. typically, occasionally 6 p.m. You can follow us on Facebook, MDDDS. There's a private forum, and then there's also a public page. And man, I hope you're having a good week. I hope it gets better for you. We will see you next time.